Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 14, Genesis chapter 14. Before we discuss this chapter in Genesis, I want to take a few minutes to discuss something of a general but, but important nature concerning the Bible. And now's a good time to do it because we're going to be in the Bible a long time. <laughs> and it involves a rather scholarly and legal term, actually, and the word is redacted, R-E-D-A-C-T-E-D, -E -E redacted. And redacted is a word you're going to hear a lot in this class. It simply means edited. Right? And I know that it bothers some Christians to be told that you are not necessarily reading the original scriptures in your Bibles. These writings went through many revisions over the ages. But I also want to assure you that these revisions, particularly to the Older Testament, were very minor. We know this is the case because with the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written down by the Essenes over a time period stretching from about 50 BC to, a, to, to just before 70 AD. We've been able to compare the words of the many Hebrew Old Testament scriptures found among those Dead Sea documents with the ones that we have been using in our Bibles for centuries, and they're virtually identical. Now, just some minor spelling variations were found and perhaps a phrase here and there was added or dropped or modified. And usually by adding, deleting, or changing a person's name or the name of a city. All right? And that, because that person's name or city more recently went by a different name or a title due to language evolution. All right. None of these minor variations had any effect whatsoever on the meanings. Now, understand that the oldest extant Old Testament documents written in Hebrew, currently in use in our Bibles, okay, are basically copies that go back to the late 900s AD, just before the time of the Crusaders. Okay. The, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in one giant leap took us back almost a thousand years from, from the oldest Old Testament text that we'd had before that point. And that's partly why that find was so important. Okay. So to see that there was virtually no meaningful changes that had occurred in that 1,000-year period attests to the dedication of the hundreds and thousands of Jewish people and Gentiles who had hand-copied that Hebrew Bible for further use and distribution over a 10-century period of time. What we're reading in our Torah portion, in the Torah of your Bible, no matter what you have for the most part, is very accurate. And it was, of course, it's certainly so in the original Hebrew. Now, where we have a few problems is with the translations from Hebrew to other languages. Okay. And the first translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew to another language was from Hebrew to Greek. And that was accomplished about 200 years before the Dead Sea Scrolls were written down. Now, called the Septuagint, the Greek language version of the Old Testament has also proven to be quite faithfully copied and handed down over the centuries. So it, too, is a most useful and accurate document. However, as we've discussed before, there are very real challenges in translating the thoughts of one culture and its associated language 
into another culture and its associated language. Hebrew thought and Greek thought were then and remain to this day miles apart. And there are many words and thoughts in Hebrew that have no parallel in Greek. So something close, or at least something similar, had to be chosen. Now the problem is even more troublesome with the New Testament because the oldest New Testament documents we possess are all written in Greek. Yet it's obvious and unchallenged that the writers of the New Testament were Jews, except for Luke. They were Jews thoroughly immersed in Hebrew culture and Hebrew thought. Now we can compare the ancient Greek Septuagint against the ancient Hebrew Old Testament and fairly easily find where the translation problems lay. But it's somewhat different for the New Testament because we have relatively few passages of the New Testament writings that were ever written down at Hebrew in Hebrew at some some point or another. And all of those seem to have actually been taken from the Greek, not the other way around. Okay. Recently though, a group of Jewish scholars have written a complete Hebrew New Testament that gives us a better understanding of the first century church. This Bible is written by the Bible Society of Israel and it's a fully parallel Old Testament and New Testament in English and Hebrew which is a very valuable tool for us. Now the translation problem is further multiplied when you take a Hebrew thought, try to write it in a foreign language like Greek and then take the Greek and further translate it into another language like English. Even more, over time, words within a particular language can take on different meanings. We see that within our own language. What an English word meant when the first King King James Bible was written, as compared to what that word means today, can be quite different. Now here's the thing. Understand that the mere translation of a document is by its very nature a redaction, an editing. Okay? Simply translating the Hebrew to Greek and then the Greek to English adds in variations. Why else do you suppose that we have an absolutely endless series of what we call Bible versions in English today? If I took a poll, I'll bet you we've got seven or eight at the very least different versions in this room with us today. I have over a hundred sitting in my computer. All right, that doesn't count the non-English language versions. And don't forget, the Bible has also been translated now into literally hundreds of other languages and a substantial amount of those from the English to that language. Now, let me, let me give you a little help tip for studying the Bible, especially the New Testament. For those of you who are pretty serious Bible students, something that very few Christian scholars are actually ever going to tell you about because very few of them even do it. And that is to compare the writings of many New Testament verses with their Old Testament counterparts. Now, does that sound odd? Okay. I mean... What verses of the Old Testament would you find in the New Testament? Well, about half of the New Testament is Old Testament quotations. A good study Bible is going to show you exactly which New Testament verses are but Old Testament quotations and even tell you which book, chapter, and verses of the Old Testament are actually being brought forward into the New Testament section you're, deal- you're reading. This Bible, the complete Jewish Bible, right, the New Testament, um, does a fairly good job of doing exactly that. You will find in the New Testament many words written in bold 
and you look down to the bottom of the page and it'll tell you book, chapter, and verse where this came from, from the Old Testament. But it's not complete. Right? It's just some of the more, the more important ones. Now, I would ask that you don't just take a mental note that that New Testament verse or paragraph is an Old Testament quotation. Stop, go back and look up that Old Testament passage and read it. And now mentally insert that into the New Testament. And depending on your Bible version, more often than not, that supposed Old Testament phrase written into the New Testament won't even look the same. It'll be all changed around. Okay. I mean, why, if the translator fully recognizes that what is being said is simply a direct quote from the Old Testament, why don't the words have an exact match? Well, often it's because the Old Testament is being translated from Hebrew documents into English, while the New Testament is being translated from Greek documents into English. Okay? And the Greek meaning often is a couple of degrees all right, off course from the Hebrew meaning. Add in a further translation from Greek to English and Hebrew to English, and it complicates the issue even further. But frustratingly, there's more. Every Christian denomination today, of which there are nearly 3,000, has a set of doctrines and a creed that each goes by. And in general, the Bible translators, either consciously or subconsciously, adhere to the doctrines and creed of one or another of those um, denominations. So when the opportunity comes to translate a word, often what is written in the original doesn't quite seem to match their preconceived doctrines. So they'll substitute a word or a phrase that's out of context, but which keeps the meaning of the verse within the boundaries of the beliefs that they hold so dear. So translation often has some agenda buried deep within it. Okay? This is why it's so necessary for us to use several versions to study from. And better yet, to gain a basic understanding of Hebrew language and culture. And I recommend that everyone have a Hebrew Bible to correlate the English translation with. Because even if you don't have a proficiency in Hebrew, you can rather easily tell when two words in Hebrew are similar. But you might see that in the parallel English, you have two very distant English words translating that same Hebrew word. Yeah, let's just ask yourself, why is that? Then one should be suspicious and do a thorough Hebrew word study to see exactly what that word means to the Hebrew mind. Now, please understand this. The Bible was not written in a vacuum. Okay? All the thoughts and phrases and word meanings were within the context of the Hebrew culture of that era. Our goal then is to find out what those words meant to the original authors. Because they should be taken to mean exactly the same thing for us. Otherwise, we turn the Bible into a living document. That is, one which is made to evolve with the times. Right. Now, I'm not issuing any condemnations. I'm simply pointing out that A, there is much more variation in the New Testament writings among the various translations than for the Old Testament. And B, this is primarily because the New Testament is where the various Christian doctrines find their foundation. Right. And where doctrinal arguments are made for defending or criticizing any particular denomination's beliefs. Now, thankfully, over the last 20 years, many Jewish scholars, either coming to belief in Messiah or at least having a far more open approach to studying and considering the New Testament, there's been some great work done in adjusting the New Testament, New Testament translations so as to be in line with the Hebrew culture and thought patterns of the first century AD. Even more 
with the discovery of what is usually called the community documents from the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, most people don't understand that the least part of the Dead Sea Scrolls was scripture. Okay? The Dead Sea Scrolls contained far more than scripture. It was mostly what they call community documents. Right? It tells us about what the Essenes believed, the writers, and so on. Right? Which is a great help because what we find in those documents is an astounding number of phrases and theology that we find in the New Testament. Only it was written before the New Testament. Thought that we believed was brand new or unique with Jesus and his disciples when in fact these theologies were already under development and the phrases already in use all right, with these Essen separatists out in the wilderness of Judah. So as I try to connect the Torah and the New Testament for you at times, I'm also now going to start to occasionally try to correlate some of the Dead Sea Scroll documents with them as well so as to help us better understand what certain things meant to the minds of those New Testament authors and what certain words and phrases meant to the vast audiences that Jesus spoke to. And that's more possible within the last 10 to 12 years than ever before in history. And let me, let, let me assure you of something though. You have nothing to fear. You're going to find that your faith in Christ is going to grow and even be further validated right, as we study Torah and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, some of the mysterious and confusing things of the New Testament that we have had so much difficulty understanding often becomes much more clear and understandable and real with the help of the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls and their comparison with the Old Testament. So, armed with all that understanding now, right, let's get on in to Genesis 14. Going to read Genesis 14. Going to read all of it. Genesis 14. When Amraphel was king of Shinar, Aryok king of Elisar, Kedolomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, they made war together against Barah king of Saddam, against Bersha king of Amorah. Shinov king of Adma, Shem Ever king of Zoyim, and the king of Bela, which is the same as Zor. All the latter kings joined forces in the Sidim Valley where the Dead Sea is. They had served Kertolomer twelve years, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kertolomer and the kings with him came and defeated the Rephaim in uh, uh, Ashtarot, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Aimim in Shavnikitaim, and the Hori at Seir, in the mountain, all the way to Eel Paran by the desert. Next they turned back, came to Ein Mishpat, which is the same as Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amaleki and also the Amori who lived in, in uh, Hatzetzon Tamar. Then the kings of Sodom, Amorah, Adma, Zvoyim, and Bela, that is Zor, came out and arrayed themselves for battle in the Sidim Valley against Kedorla uh, Lemor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Adma, Aryot, king of Elisar, four kings against the five. Now the Sidim Valley was full of clay pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Amorah fled, some fell into them while the rest fled to the hills. The victors took all the possessions of Saddam and Amor and all their food supply, then they left. But as they left, they took Lot, Avram's brother's son, and all his possessions, since he was living in Saddam. Someone 
who had escaped came and told Avram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amori, brother of Eshkol and brother of uh, Aner, all of them allies of Abram. And Abram heard that his nephew had been taken captive. He let out his trained men who had been born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now during the night, he and his servants divided his forces against them, then attacked and pursued them all the way to Hovah north of Damasek, Damascus. He recovered all the goods and, and brought back his nephew Lot with his goods together with the women and the other people. After his return from slaughtering Kotalomer and the kings with him, the king of Saddam went out to meet him in the Shave Valley, also known as the, king, as the King's Valley. Malchizedek, king of Shalom, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of El Elyon, God Most High, and so he blessed him with these words. Blessed be Avram by El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon who handed your enemies over to you. Avram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Saddam said to Avram, Give me the people, and you keep the goods for yourself. But Avram answered the king of Saddam, I have raised my hand in an oath to Adonai, El Elyon, maker of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a thread or a sandal thong of anything that's yours, so that you won't be able to say, I made Avram rich. I will take only what my troops have eaten and the share of the spoil belonging to the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. You know, <clears throat> there's way more to this chapter than meets the eye. And there's a lot to it that does, isn't there? We're entering some really meaty parts of the Torah that sets the stage for the future. Now this area where um, Lot had gone to live, the Jordan Valley, right, this, this area right along here, you see the Jordan River, and here's the Dead Sea down here. This is the Jordan Valley, extended all the way down to the Dead Sea and included the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and in essence, this was part of a district that was controlled by a, a king named Ketole Omar. All right? And Ketole Omar apparently had some type of mutual protection treaty with a small group of nations and kings mentioned in the outset, beginning with verse 1. Now, the names of these various kingdoms listed here cannot all be translated into a specific area on a modern map, but some can. For instance, the place called Elisar is almost assuredly Asher, right, which is up in here, right, along the Tigris River. Right. Uh, this was a place that was originally built by Nimrod, right, and which gave the name to a surrounding area that eventually became known as Assyria. Right. Amraphel, one of the kings that was allied with Ketolomar, right, lived way up north in an area called Elam. Right. It was also known as Shinar. Right. All the same area, the place Nimrod called home, and also where Ur is, that Abraham originally came from. So Abraham knew who these guys were. He was familiar with them. Now, the place called Elam, which was Ketolomar's kingdom, right, or better city-state, is also known by another biblical name that you'll run across called Shushan. You'll find that name for it in the book of Esther. Today, it's called by another name, Khuzestan. All right. Now, remember, we're going to find many names for people and places in the Bible that change over the centuries, okay? both as a result of changing languages and of the changing of hands of a city to a rival king or rival empire. Elam, Shushan, Khuzestan are the same place. Okay? 
In modern times, this place is located in southwestern Iran. Okay, just a few miles from Ur. And we also know that Shinar and Elam, all right, uh, in, in ancient times, likely shared a border. Now, King Tidal is known to be a king of the Hittites over in this area. Right? And the Bible calls his territory Goyim. Right? And it's covered the areas of what today we call Western Turkey and uh, Syria. Now, prior to Abraham, Goyim was a very generic word right, that meant nation. Just the word nation in a very general sense. Just like we would use it today. Nation. But once God separated Abraham and then designated him as the first Hebrew, which is what set him apart as a special and unique nation of people set apart for God's purpose, the word goyim then took on a slightly different tone. Okay. From that point forward, it meant all the other nations and peoples of the world except for Abraham and his people. At that point, God divided the world into two pieces. Abraham and his people and everybody else. The everybody else was called Goyim. Gentiles. Okay. So by about 1900 B.C., Goyim meant, in, realistically, Gentile nations or Gentile people. Here in Genesis 14, it's very likely that whoever was the last person to redact this chapter of Genesis in antiquity was simply showing that the original scriptural documents, that, that, that rather in the original scriptural documents, that talked about the kingdom that King Tidal reigned over, the name of that kingdom wasn't written down and named. All right? So he simply inserted the rather generic term Goyim, nation, indicating that Tidal was in indeed a king over some nation or another. Now, it's through fairly new archaeological evidence that we now know with certainty that King Tidal ruled over a people called the Hittites. And by the way, the Hittites were an enormous and dominant and very advanced culture of that era. I suspect that when Genesis was first written down, it wasn't at all necessary to explain what people King Tidal ruled over any more than it would be necessary to explain today to most any literate culture in the modern world what nation President Bush is president over. It's simply common knowledge. Now, the common element among the territories of all these allied kings who were going to come down from Mesopotamia, down to the Middle East and make war, is that they were all in what we call Mesopotamia and the territories they held were substantial. The district, this district that we see all outlined along here from all the way south, all right, all the way up pretty much to uh, uh, what we now call the Sea of Galilee, all along here, um, <clears throat> had, had its own rulers. All right? and, and we were given several of their names, but I guarantee you that's not all there were. Okay. We have Berah, Bershah, Shem, Eber, and an unnamed ruler of a place called Zoar. Right? And we're told that they had paid tribute to Kedolaomer for 12 years as part of a peace treaty they had made with him. And every one, see, of these minor kings ruled over pretty small armies and pretty limited territory as compared to those four Mesopotamian kings. Well, in the 13th year, since the making of the treaty, these rulers now down here rebelled. Which simply means they grew tired of paying tribute to these guys. And they refused to pay anymore. 
So a year later, we're told, in the 13th year, Kedola Omer and his allies marched south, and they attacked all along the district. Now, the Allied armies met up, we're told, in the Valley of Sidim, which is just south of the Dead Sea. Matter of fact, it's a valley that no longer exists because now it is part of the Dead Sea. Okay, Here's one of those places in the Bible where redaction took place. All right, Because when this event happened and when it was first written down, the Valley of Sidim did exist. Okay? Later, when a Bible copier was copying the text, he added the words, now the Dead Sea. Otherwise, nobody would have known what or where the now inundated Sidim Valley was. Even more, the words the editor, the first editor, actually wrote down was not Dead Sea, but Salt Sea. Even later, when the name Salt Sea fell out of use and became known as the Dead Sea, the Bible copiers naturally started using the term Dead Sea instead of Salt Sea. So as you can understand, none of this represents substantial changes, nor does it change the location or the meaning, but all of these redactions do clarify and bring forward facts that would otherwise have become obscure and maybe even lost. And, and this type of redaction that I'm talking to you about is the most typical kind of Bible redaction or editing. Now, for you geography buffs, you might like to know that the Dead Sea is really two parts, this northern part and this southern part. The northern part is what existed in Abraham's day. Right? It was very deep something like 1,300 feet deep. And the southern part, of course, didn't exist Um, until after Abraham's time, and it was the result of the northern part filling up and spilling over into the shallow valley to the south of it, the Sidim Valley. So the Sidim Valley became filled up with water and simply became a fairly shallow part of now totality of the Dead Sea. Well, the route that the kings took from Mesopotamia was already known by that time as the very well-marked King's Highway. You've probably heard of it. And here it is marked with the dash line going all the way from way up north, starting at Damascus, all the way down to this finger of uh, of the Red Sea that we today call the Gulf of Aqaba. And as a matter of fact, the road eventually got extended all the way to Egypt. Now, these kings from the north attacked and defeated the Rephaim at a place called Ashtaroth Karnaim, right, right up here. The Zuzim at Ham, nobody's quite sure where that is. The Amim at a place called Shavne Karataim, right, right here. Right? And finally, far to the south, the Horites in an area called Seir, which we've read in our Bibles many times. Then later they turned, headed north, and went up to a place called Ein Mishpat right, and defeated the Amalekites there, which, again, this place, the Bible also tells us, is also called Kadesh. Now, the people called the Rephaim, Zuzim, and Emim are very difficult to identify. Um, several lessons ago, we talked about the Nephilim, all right, this race of giants or powerful and tyrannical men spoken of before the flood. They were supposedly the result of fallen angels mating with female humans. And it is thought by many sages that the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Amim may well have been a kind of post-flood Nephilim. Now, 
they don't seem to be known anywhere as a tribe. So this appears to be more of a description, these names. All right? And their names reflect the language and culture of that region where each of them is found. But this is conjecture. It's not at all clear who these three groups of people were. The other names mentioned, like the Horites, the Amalekites, and the Amorites, are very well attested to right, in uh, ancient, as, as ancient Middle Eastern tribes. Now, when the rebellious kings knew that they had to react to these armies coming down from the north that were nearing to them, they gathered together and met the armies of the kings in the valley of Sidim. This is where the great battle and decisive battle finally took place. And, pardon me, without going into detail, the various rulers of this rebellious district came out to battle against these kings, and frankly, they got creamed. Right? They were just overrun. And uh, uh, Ketaloamer's allied army took all the district's food supply, their possessions of value, and even some of their people to use as slaves. This was normal battle protocol in those days. And among those taken to be used as slaves were Lot and his family who were living in Saddam all right, when the attack came. Saddam somewhere around the rim of this valley, as best as anybody can tell. Now, <clears throat> Abraham hears Lot's been kidnapped and immediately he takes 318 of his men out of his own household, we're told. Right, and he sets out to rescue Lot. Now, at the time Abraham got the news of this, he was living among some of the Canaanite peoples with whom he had apparently entered into some type of formal alliance by means of a treaty. But he elected not to use any of these Canaanites to help him. Rather, the 318 men he took were loyal to him. Right? since many had been born into his clan and apparently he had trained them in welfare or uh, welfare warfare okay this gives us some idea of the size of the nation or people Abraham had become in a rather short period of time by the way this does not mean Abraham was the biological father of all these men okay almost certainly the vast majority of these were the children of many of Abraham's slaves and servants. Because people purchased as slaves, of which Abraham would have owned many, were considered part of the family in this era. Right. You know, because of the familiar history of the brutal and ungodly African slave trade that supplied so many of the field workers in early America, we get a very distorted idea of what slavery among the biblical Hebrews amounted to. Okay, Slavery among the Hebrews was not that far from modern day adoption. Not at all. all right? Where someone often pays a mother for the right to adopt her child, or at least pays some of her medical expenses during pregnancy and maybe maybe gives her a stipend. So even though direct children of Abraham certainly had authority and rights of inheritance above these slaves and the children born to these slaves, the slaves were not maltreated. All right? They were usually very valuable and beloved members um, of the clan and given much respect. <clears throat> well, Abraham and his warriors pursue these kings all the way to what would eventually become known as Damascus, Syria. Lot was taken from down here. He caught up with him up here, actually north of that a little bit. They went a long way, a long way. Now notice that verse 14 says they went as far as the region of Dan. Now think about that for a second. Here is another obvious redaction. Because Dan was named after one of the sons of Jacob, 
one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob was an eventual grandson of Abraham. Dan, an eventual son of Jacob. And the land called Dan, an eventual location of the tribe of Dan after the Exodus. So the area called Dan here could not possibly have been called that for at least 600 years after this story originally happened. Okay. Well, after Abraham and his men pull off a surprise attack at night on the, on, uh, the ex by now exhausted and depleted armies from up north and they achieve victory, all the booty is recovered and Lot and his family are freed. And upon their return, Abraham and his men are given a rousing welcome by the grateful rulers, those kings of the district, and the residents of the now restored district who got most of their stuff back. Well, beginning in verse 18, we are treated to a fascinating but brief story and meet one of the most mysterious characters in all the Bible. Melchizedek, king of Shalem. Now, in addition to being a king, we're told that Melchizedek was also a high priest and that he worships El Elyon, the God Most High. And Melchizedek comes out to greet Abraham and he brings bread and wine and he blesses Abraham and Abraham then presents him with a tenth of everything that he had recovered. Okay, So an interesting play now gets set up here. Two rulers come to greet Abraham. The king of Saddam, the evil ruler of the evil place, comes and Melchizedek, the good ruler of a righteous place, both come out to meet Abraham. And a truly important pattern gets established in this story. And as it continues on into the first verses of chapter 15, we'll talk a little more about its significance. Now, I want to take a little time with this because I've found that when we come across these odd little scenes in the Bible, it's best to look at them pretty closely all right? because something of great significance is occurring. And it's no different here. Now, who or what is Melchizedek? I'm glad you asked. Okay. First thing to understand is that Melchizedek is not a formal or personal name. It's a title. Okay. So we're not told exactly who this person is. As an example, President Bush's name is not President. It's George Bush. That's his name. Okay? President is just the title of the office he holds. This is also true of the so-called names of God that we have run into up to now in Genesis. Okay? In fact, the title used for God in this story, El Elyon, God Most High, is also not a name in the way we typically think of it. But it does indicate that Melchizedek is a believer in the God of the Bible and that he is perhaps one of the few remaining monotheists, that is, those who worship only one God, that still exist in, in, that, in that era. So none of the so-called names of God are actually his name up to this point in the Bible. They're all titles, but they're also something else. Just like the president is the title of the office that George Bush holds, so are the various titles of God indicative of the office, the authority that God holds. Further, we need to keep in mind that when the Bible refers to things like El Elyon, El Shaddai, and several more titles of God as names, it doesn't mean a proper name like Tom or Becky or Jerry or something like that. <clears throat> Rather, name in Hebrew, S-H-E-M, which is pronounced shame, right, most of the time in the Bible 
means reputation. It doesn't mean a personal name. It means reputation. So God's name, God's reputations are many. He has a reputation as God Most High, God of the Heavenly Host, the God who hides me, the Lord who provides, the Lord who heals, and several more. You see that? There's reputations. Now, it won't be until the time of Moses, several hundred years into the future, that God actually divulges his personal and formal name. Why? We, we, we say Y-H-W-H or yud heh vav -Hey, which we usually pronounce as Yahweh or Yahweh. Right? That is like Tom or Jerry or Becky or Elizabeth. It's a personal name. It's not a reputation and it's not a title. So as regards the title, Melchizedek, Melchi means king and Zedek means righteousness. So it's a title translated to English means my king is righteousness or the king of righteousness. And it's a name in the sense of it being this unknown man's reputation. Okay? Now, there are precious few words spoken about this intriguing fellow, unfortunately. But we need to glean as much as we can from this because he is referred to in a powerful way in the New Testament. Which means that after even 1900 years from Abraham meeting Melchizedek, apparently much more was known about this man and remembered than was ever written down that we've ever found. Okay. Melchizedek is seen by the writer of Hebrews as a very special part of Israel's history and perhaps of Israel's spiritual future. Let's stop and take a few minutes to look at this key section of Hebrews. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. Okay, and we're going to start reading at verse 1. Hebrews 7, verse 1. I'm going to go read through uh, 17, 1 through 17. Now this Malchizedek, all right, king of Shalem, a priest of God, Ha'elyon, met Abraham on his way back from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And by the way, that entire first verse is a direct quote from the Old Testament. Now, first of all, by translation of his name, he is king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Shalem, which means king of peace. There is no record of his father, his mother, his ancestry, his birth, or death. Rather, like the Son of God, he continues as a priest for all time. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the choicest spoils. Now the descendants of Levi, who became priests, have a commandment in the Torah to take a tenth of the income of the people, that is, from their own brothers, despite the fact that they too are descended from Abraham. But Malchizedek, even though he was not descended from Levi, took a tenth from Abraham. Also he blessed Abraham, the man who received God's promises. And it is beyond all dispute that the one who blesses has higher status than the one who receives the blessing. Moreover, in the case of the priests, the tenth is received by men who die, while in the case of Melchizedek, it is received by someone who is testified to be still alive. One might go even further and say that Levi, who himself received tenths, paid a tenth through Abraham in his match as he was still in his ancestor Abraham's body when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, it, if it had been possible 
to reach the goal through the system of the priest derived from Levi, since in connection with it the people were given the Torah, what, who, uh, what need would there have been for another different kind of priest, the one spoken of as to be compared with Malchizedek and not to be compared with Aaron? For if the system of priests is transformed, there must of necessity, must of necessity, uh, must of necessity, sorry, occur a transformation of Torah. The one about whom these things are said belongs to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For everyone knows that our Lord arose out of Judah, and that Moses said nothing about this tribe when he spoke about priests. It becomes even clearer if a different kind of priest, one like Melchizedek, arises, one who became a priest not by virtue of a rule in the Torah concerning physical descent, but by virtue, virtue of the power of an indestructible life. For it is stated, you are a priest forever to be compared with Melchizedek. The, Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew sages and scholars had some really interesting things to say about this mysterious fellow that St. Paul and others obviously relied on and believed as truth. Okay. Or Melchizedek would not have been used to draw some very important parallels that I hope you heard with Yeshua, with Jesus. Okay. And the first thing to understand is that Melchizedek was real. He was not a symbol and he's not a metaphor. Okay? Even Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian of Christ's era, verified that Melchizedek was a real person. Okay? We find, for instance, that in the passages we just read that he was a king and a priest over a city called Shalem. And that there is some evidence that before that city was called Shalem, right, it was called Sedek. And that this place either actually was, or was at least adjacent to, the Jerusalem that would eventually come. Now, some of the ancient scribes also said that Melchizedek was actually Shem, the son of Noah. Now, you may ask, do you mean like a second coming of Shem, or like a Shem-like individual, or maybe a descendant of Shem? No. These scribes meant that Melchizedek was the actual, real, literal Shem. And that is entirely possible because Shem, by biblical records and chronologies, was alive at this time. He was still living. Of course, Shem was destined to be the line of righteousness that extended from Noah. And if anyone alive at this time were completely loyal to the one God, it would have been Shem who rode out the great flood with his family of eight individuals. I am not telling you that Shem, for sure, was Melchizedek. Do you understand that, please? I'm telling you this is what a lot of the sages say, and I'm telling you pretty hard to find a better candidate than Shem. We're going to talk more about Melchizedek next time.